Job chapter 40. After a series of complaints and speeches, complaints from Job, speeches from his friends, the Lord speaks to him out of the whirlwind or out of the storm, not because he's been forced to by Job's protest of his innocence, but out of his concern and his love for Job. In the two discourses or speeches in which God speaks, he ignores Job's complaints. He does not respond to Job's uh, claim of innocence. He doesn't correct Job for some wrongdoing, as the friends probably would have expected. Instead, the Lord addresses Job as a teacher would a student, not giving specific information as such, not dealing with specific problems, but in fact opening up new avenues of understanding. And thus, what we find in these chapters is not what we would have expected. Instead, what God does is he points out to Job that he, that is the Lord, and he alone created the world in wisdom, and that he and he alone governs in wisdom with justice and compassion. Just to review quickly what we looked at last week. First of all, God laid the earth's foundation according to plan. And he brought forth the seas. He did so establishing their boundaries. He also called forth the sun to enlighten the earth and to send the wicked into hiding. And in doing this, what God does is, as he talks about creation, he also talks about justice. It is, in fact, at the center of the uh, structure of creation. He does this, I think, in part because Job has been saying it's unfair, it's unjust, everything that's happened to me, this is injustice. And God is saying, listen, at the heart of my creation is justice. The second thing that I would point out is there is no area or region of creation beyond God's governing authority. Whether it's the recesses of the deep, the deepest part of the oceans, the gates of death, uh, the expanse of the earth, the storehouses of snow and hail, the place of light and darkness, the path of the thunderstorm. Um, God is in control. He has ultimate authority in every aspect of creation. And, and I have in my notes this is important, God manages the various forces in the world for the benefit of all creation, not simply for the benefit of humanity. So, for example, in chapter 38, verses 25 to 37, but in there he talks about the fact that he causes rain to fall in the desert. Well, there's no, there's no one out in the desert, or very few people, if there are any at all. And the implication is if human beings were in charge, they would say that is an inefficient use of precipitation. Okay, You should, in fact, have rainfall where there are people. Don't waste precious rain. But it isn't all about us, is it? Storm, hail, frost, and many more cause us discomfort. But does this mean they should not exist just because they cause discomfort? God in his wisdom manages the natural forces of creation in a way that bear witness to the fact that he is wise, that he sustains, and that he maintains the entire creation. To put it simply, Creation does not revolve around humanity. And I think this might be one of the reasons why, as God begins to speak, he speaks of the heights and the depths and the vastness of creation and the amazing phenomena that fill it. Uh, 
It points to the fact that he is the creator and the preserver. And without being cruel to Job, he is being told by God that God has more to think about than his problems. That Job's perspective is, in fact, very, very narrow, as is that of his friends. And then the third thing, and this is really what has stuck with me this past week, is that God is the God of wild animals. I mentioned last week on the sixth day of creation, the Lord created the living creatures of the land, including Adam, and some of these are called wild animals, implying that even in a perfect world, there are animals that are not tamed, that are not domesticated by human beings. They have territory that is assigned to them for their continued existence. Their being wild is not necessarily a result of the fall. We shouldn't think that all animals were domesticated and then Adam and Eve sinned and then all of a sudden some of them sort of went rogue, you know, and they were wild and that's why we call them wild animals. Not at all. What has happened since the fall is there's been an imbalance. So that some of the land that is, in fact, for wild animals has been taken over by human beings. At the same time, in certain places, the land where human beings live has been invaded by wild animals. There is, in fact, an ecological disaster, if you wish, on every side. It isn't just about human civilization, but God's creation. In a beautiful section of what we saw last week, God describes how he cares for the wild animals of creation. He provides them with food. He watches over their pregnancies and deliveries. He gives the wild donkey and the wild ox a love for freedom, so much so that they refuse to surrender their freedom. And I point out, and I repeat it at the end of the sermon, that we find within each animal, God gives complementary gifts. That is two sides of the same coin. They have gifts, but they also have flaws. The ostrich runs wild. It can run fast. Yet not the brightest bulb in chandelier, if you wish. I mean, they step on their eggs. They don't seem to be aware of things. They have graces. They have faults. They have charms and handicaps. So much so, and we talked about this after the sermon last week, after the service, that a human being might be tempted to say, that is not the way I would do it. And it's still not the way that I would do it. This has been Job's contention all along, that what's happening to him, that's not the way he would do it. And God, in speaking to him, seeks to open his eyes to a new way of understanding, and he does so by pointing at creation. Now we come to chapter 40. And just a reminder that the chapter divisions were added later, so that what we find in chapter 40 is actually, I would say, the end of the first discourse that we hear from God. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So we find in the closing of the first discourse a question and a command. And you may remember last week, that's what we found at the beginning of the discourse, a question and a command. We should note well here and throughout Scripture, and in fact in the New Testament reading today, that when God asks a question, he generally does so in grace. He doesn't ask a question because he, needs, he doesn't know and he needs someone to answer. 
He does so, I mean, he knows all things. He does so rather to show his grace. So I don't know if you recall what Gia read to us today from Luke 18. A blind man comes comes up to Jesus and says, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? I was like, duh. I mean, but that is a question asked in grace. And this is the way that God has dealt with humanity from the very beginning, from the fall when Adam hid himself and God says, where are you? Didn't God know where he was? He says, I hid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knew the answer to all of these questions, but he asked them in grace so that, in fact, people might respond, Adam and Eve at least, in repentance and say they might admit their guilt. So, here in verse number two, Does God know who contends with the Almighty? Well, we do. We've been reading the book. Certainly God does. But he does so, I think, to draw Job out. Instead of saying, I know when the mountain goats give birth, he asked Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Throughout the uh, the first discourse, God asked questions to draw Job out. And how does Job respond? Verses 3, 4, and 5 here of Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. What should strike us is how little Job has to say. He's been talking throughout the whole book, and now he has a chance to speak, and he doesn't say very much at all. He is, in fact, I think, overwhelmed by God's majesty, and he's aware of his own smallness which is appropriate. I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? And he concedes that he is in no position to answer God, which in some ways is something Job was afraid of. Back in chapter 9, he says, how then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? But there's a difference, because back in chapter 9, Job thought it was going to be a power struggle. God has the power, I don't. But here... It is the power of God's words, not sort of this brute power that God is beating him down, but God is speaking to him, dare I say, brilliantly, and Job is overwhelmed by what God has to say. But I would suggest to you, and I'm open to correction, that Job still doesn't get it. He won't get it until we get to chapter 42. Because at this point, he doesn't retract his claim of innocence. He says, I spoke once, twice, but I will say no more. How about forgive me? How about I repent? Well, he'll do that in chapter 42. At this point, he sort of dug his heels in and it's like, you're God and I'm not. But he's not, I would say he is not bowing in humility before the creator. His admission seems almost reluctant and less than enthusiastic, in my opinion. It is because of that that God speaks again. I would suggest to you that had Job gotten it, then God wouldn't have to say anything else. Okay? Mission accomplished. But in fact, Job hasn't gotten it yet, and so God speaks to him once again. Job has not withdrawn his case. 
And so the Lord will continue to speak and question Job. And again, in doing this, he is expressing his care. This is not a power battle, which God's like, I'm God and you're just a a maggot, as Bildad would say. No, he cares for Job. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He loves him. And that's why he is trying to draw him out. On the face of it, there are two parts of the speech that we'll look at today in chapters 40 and 41. The first are questions about Job and Job's power. The power he, does he in fact have power? And then we have a portrait or portraits of two, of two creatures, behemoth and Leviathan. The second speech is not a continuation of the first. Okay? The first speech is more about the fact that God is gracious that God has a just creation, that he maintains the world, that justice is at the center of what he does. The second speech, however, God demonstrates that even though he has the power to execute his will and his wisdom, he does so in ways that may not make sense to us. So say, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. In studying this passage, there are two questions, I think, that are critical to understanding. The first is, what are the creatures intended by behemoth and Leviathan? We'll get to this in a bit. Um, The NIV has footnotes, and it says that behemoth is possibly the hippopotamus, which I think that it is, and the Leviathan is possibly the crocodile. Yeah, probably not. Okay, Leviathan is a a sea creature, uh, not a water creature on land. The second question is, why does Job respond the way he does later, after this second speech? Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Why didn't you do that in chapter 40? Why do we have to wait till chapter 42? And I would suggest that it was not how God spoke about behemoth and Leviathan as such. But instead, in this extended passage... God asked Job, if you were in charge of the universe, what would you do? Would you crush the wicked or the proud man? Would you create the useless? Would you control the hostile? In each case, power is the issue and justice is the principle. For God, they're not at odds. Job's not so sure. And so God will, through questions, sort of, Get Job to think in a new way. So first of all, questions to Job about his power. Verses 6 through 14 of chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Some might argue that Thus far in this sermon, I've been too harsh on Job. 
that in fact he did learn from the first discourse, that he is small before God, that his knowledge is limited in scope and time, and that Job is eager to learn. Yeah, but how does God start the second discourse? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And on the face of it, I think these are harsh words. Maybe not to a healthy man, someone who is in the prime of life, but consider where Job is and all that he's been through. And yet God in his gracious way opens with questions. If you look at verses eight and nine, will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like this? In other words, do you refute my wisdom? Do you condemn my justice? Do you doubt my power? Do you reject my voice? The subjects of this second speech are justice and power. You may remember, as we've gone through this series, that Job has raised these issues. Justice. It is, why would God allow Job to suffer? That seems unjust. It seems unfair. Particularly since Job says, I am innocent. I should not be suffering anything. So implied in this questioning of God's justice is a question of God's power. Okay, maybe you're a just God, but you, in fact, don't have the power to make things right. So that's why this has happened to me. And there are those who have argued that over the years, over the centuries, various heresies, that there are actually two gods, a good one and a bad one, and sometimes the bad one is stronger, that Satan is stronger. And so what's happening to Job, God has no control over. He doesn't have the power. And so God has to address these two issues. He is a God of justice. He is a God of power. Now we come to the exceptions of God's creation, which seek to make the point that God's trying to get Job to see. These are things that we would not include in a universe if we were the creator. These are things that we think do not belong in a creation made by God. The wicked, which we've looked at when talking about Job's uh, power, the useless behemoth, and the hostile, that is Leviathan. If you were in charge of the world, would you allow the wicked people to continue? Would you allow them to live? Would you allow the useless parts of creation to continue? Or would you just get rid of them? And would you seek to control the hostile? The wicked are mentioned in verses 10 through 14. Um, and, and God asked Job, listen, if you were in charge, if you were like for a day, for a week, you were in charge of creation, would you bring them down? Would you crush the wicked? Would you bury them in the dust together, shroud their faces in the grave? And there's part of us that say, that actually doesn't sound like a bad idea. Let's lock them up. Let's get rid of them. But something would be missing if you did that. You would be the omnipotent God of justice and there would be no grace, no grace. You would not be the God of all grace as God is, but simply the God of all power. 
one has only to examine human history to find examples of human beings who pretended or thought they had the power to play God and that they were going to punish the wicked. And every generation defines wicked in a different way. Um, But in the process, they created greater evil than that which they were trying to get rid of. Just look at the 20th century. You don't have to go earlier than that. Just look at the 20th century in which people are trying to create a utopian society. Like we got to get rid of this segment of society because they're screwing things up. They are the wicked, if you wish. And, in the, and the end result is a greater, a greater wickedness than they ever thought they were fighting. You may remember that Jesus said, um, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye until you take the plank out of your own. And why is it it is human nature that when we find faults in others, it's usually the faults that we find in ourselves that somehow we try to hide. To wish that God would treat the wicked as they deserve shows a lack of compassion on our part and shows an unawareness. That might be too kind an ignoring of our own sinfulness. We've seen this throughout the book of Job, but let's repeat it here again. The desire to be in control is at its heart satanic. Even if it is for a good cause, a just cause, we want a just society, and who doesn't? And we should. But the answer is not to be in control. It is not to replace God with human authority. Now the two beasts. And this will be an extended reading. The first is Behemoth in chapter 40, beginning at verse 15, and then all of chapter 41 for Leviathan. God turns from the wicked and the proud to the useless and the hostile. As one author put it, it is the apex of natural and supernatural strength. Behemoth being natural strength and Leviathan as supernatural because we find Leviathan mentioned in other books of, of the Bible and is usually in opposition to God and in some places even for Satan. So there's almost a supernatural component to Leviathan. I would just tell you plainly, I don't know what Leviathan is. You know, is it, some people said it's crocodile. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not that even though the description seems to match that. Is it a dragon? Mm-hmm. Do we believe in dragons? Uh, you know, is it a sea creature that's now extinct? Um, if we're not too careful, we will miss the point that's being made while we try to figure that out. Okay. What we need to see is that God, in fact, has Leviathan and he has Behemoth in his creation. Okay. The first, Behemoth, has no benefit. The second is only hostile. As one writer put it, they embody the inexplicable and the frightening in God's world. Here are two of the mysteries of God. Behemoth is actually plural in Hebrew. It's plural for the word beast, so it's beasts. It is the beast par excellence, if you wish. I have no problem seeing this as referring to the hippopotamus, 
or some creature very much like it, certainly not an elephant. Um, as I said, Leviathan is mentioned uh, in chapter 3, as well as other passages in Psalm 74, uh, 14, it was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Uh, Psalm 104, there the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. And then in Isaiah 27, which is a passage that would seem to be speaking of Satan. Um, in that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. We'll come back to that in a bit. Let's look at the useless. Let's look at the hippopotamus. Verse 15. Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like, sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him or pierce his nose? If we take behemoth to be a hippopotamus, we find here a riddle of creation. We have here a creature that God has made that serves no purpose. Okay? It has no unique function or special quality to set it apart in the animal kingdom. One writer put it this way, the hippopotamus is ugly and useless. The hippopotamus is a ludicrous creature who fouls up a neat and orderly universe in which everything makes sense and everything makes a contribution. Not the hippo. If the hippopotamus has a reason for being, it is to keep us laughing at the ludicrous in ourselves as well as in the universe. What purpose do they serve? They eat grass, we know that. Um, I did a little research of hippopotamuses. Their digestive system has no bacteria in it to help break down food. And therefore, they eat their own feces. Gross, okay? Um, another thing I know is more people are killed every year in Africa by hippopotamuses than any other. You'd think lions or you know, some wild. No, hippopotamus. Ugly and useless. But what does God say about the hippo, the behemoth? Verse 15, which I made along with you. Day six of creation, God made man. Yeah, he made the hippos too. And then verse 19, he ranks first among the works of God. The author that I just quoted earlier said, the big, dumb, ugly, useless animal called the hippopotamus is a special object of God's care. Whether feeding on the mountains, playing in the fields, lying under a lotus tree, or letting the river gush into his eyes, nose, and mouth, the beast is a tranquil picture of playful trust. 
Beauty and function are not conditions of God's grace. Among the contingencies of his creation are ugly and useless creatures or circumstances for which the purpose seems unknown. In the face of suffering or tragedy, particularly of what we call the innocent, we may cry, what a waste. It makes no sense at all. What ugliness. This is how Job feels about his suffering. If God was, if Job was in charge, if he was God, and let's put ourselves, if we were in charge, would we create the ugly and the useless? Or would we do away with all creatures and circumstances that seem to have no obvious purpose? If we judge a person, a creature, or events based on their utilitarian value, we are going down a dangerous path. And we must turn around and go the other way. You may judge the greatness of a society for how it treats the weak and useless. I would say as we see our society beginning to disintegrate, I think it is based on the reality that it seems to have no place for the weak and the useless. And now that we have science to make getting rid of them possible, consider euthanasia, for example, um, yeah, they no, longer, they no longer have a function. We're just, they're just eating food that we could give to someone else. They're requiring medical care that we could give to someone who's younger. In the same way, we might reduce God's creation or our creative things, art, music, to its utilitarian value. What is the dollar sign that goes after a painting or after a piece of music? And it may be that in our lives, hard circumstances seem to, we would say this serves no purpose. It has no value. I am uncomfortable, though I'm sure I've done it in the past, when people try to explain why a tragedy happened or why suffering has come into a person's life. We try to see that maybe some good will come out of this. It will serve some purpose. It may be, but I, I don't know that I'm the person to say that. Only God knows these things. Should we not, in fact, when faced with tragedy and suffering, say, this is ugly? This is terrible. It seems to be a waste. But when we say that, we should think of the hippopotamus. This ugly, useless creature that is a part of God's creation. And not simply a part. It's a very special part of God's creation. So even though Job has gone through so much that we cannot begin to comprehend, and to him it just seems so unfair, God's like, look at behemoth, the useless and the ugly. 
Now chapter 41. The useless and the ugly, maybe we can get our minds around that. But now we come to the hostile, which is personified or is embodied in the creature known as Leviathan. Thirty-four verses. Follow along if you would as I read them. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an argument with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each one is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream forth from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherd, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. The other extreme from behemoth is Leviathan, a monster of land and sea. And in contrast to the sort of playful, trusting hippo that is useless, we have a creature of violent hostility. He is described as uncatchable, unfeeling, untrustworthy, unmanageable, unplayful, undesirable, inhospitable, unethical. The physical details are a bit frightening. 
and yet God is still in control. If you look at verses 10 and 11, no one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. All the forces of evil, no matter how fierce, are not outside God's command and control. So then the question comes up, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he, in fact, wipe evil from the face of the earth? Job, if you had the power, would you subdue evil? There's a gentle reminder in verses 26 to 32 that we don't have the power that we might imagine. But even if you did have the power and you did subdue evil, What would be lost if you could, in fact, get rid of evil, end suffering, end sin, God's justice be vindicated? What would be the result? All would be lost, including us. It is the symbol of Leviathan that God has made a choice. If you look at the last verse, by the way, of chapter 41, there he speaks, I think, of Satan. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all who are proud. Human race, can anyone say? Yeah. God has made a choice. Job needs to see this. We need to see this. God has chosen. He well, he had a choice. Have a perfect world or have a world that he loves. A creation that he loves. And since Adam and Eve have sinned, all has been subjected. And God has chosen not to wipe out evil, but to continue to love his creation. He permits evil to exist until he has finished the story, his redemptive purpose. And the results are that we have in God's creation, an orderly creation, we have disorder, and we have disordered contingencies and possibilities. We have Leviathans, which if we were God, we would say, yeah, we, don't, we need to get rid of all of that. It is this God who speaks to Job in grace. He doesn't answer the why question. Why did this happen to me? Instead, he answers another question. Who am I? You may remember Job said, the thing I feared has happened to me. And his greatest fear is that God is not who he said he was. And God here is saying, this is who I am. Behemoth. Leviathan. He is a God of grace. Job will respond, we will see in the weeks to come, in repentance, because now he gets it. Just a few things before we go for you to consider and meditate on in the days to come. What would the world look like if you were in charge? Would there be wicked people? Would there be useless parts of creation? 
where there would be hostile and even violent aspects of creation. What would the world look like if you got to be God? I think it might be perfect, and yet it would be sterile, and there would be no grace. And then consider the place of the useless in our world and the wonder of creation. We've talked about this after the service in the, in the past weeks, how that God doesn't just simply had, didn't simply make one kind of flower. He made different kinds of flowers, different colors. And one could argue, yeah, but they have a purpose because the bees and the honey and all that. But just this incredible diversity that one might argue is not really efficient. God is not an efficient use of your power. But also consider the place of the useless in the difficulties of our lives. Why has this happened? This makes no sense. This is terrible. This is ugly. Remember the hippopotamus. And now in this Advent season, I would ask you to consider how God does things. Because I think after the sermon last week, we came away with the idea, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. And perhaps after today with the hippopotamus and Leviathan, yeah, I'm not sure I would do it that way. Well, think about the incarnation, the way that Jesus came into the world. We're so familiar with the story now, it's 2,000 years later. But if you think about it, isn't there a part of you that says, I wouldn't do it that way. You get a young girl who's engaged, maybe a teenager, pregnant, um, and then they, they travel far from their hometown, and she gives birth in a stable. Uh, that, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. That, that almost seems ugly. Over the centuries, it's become a thing of beauty because Christ has come into the world. But if you, if you look at it for what it is, it's not a particularly pretty picture. And yet this is the way God has done things. And as God works in our lives, there may be times when we're like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it this way. <laughs> I would do things very, very differently. That's certainly what Job is thinking. And God says, look at Behemoth. Look at Leviathan. I am who I am. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, we have come to see you as the creator, that you sent your son to be our savior, to recreate us, to redeem us. And we are grateful for that. And yet there's a part of us, as with Job, that really struggles with why you have allowed certain things to exist, whether in creation or in our circumstances, in our lives, in the lives of others, we just why are you allowing this to happen? And apparently we're asking the wrong question. We should be asking, who is the God of creation? The God who makes the hippopotamus, who makes Leviathan. The God who allows the wicked to live. The God who asks questions 
instead of making pronouncements. May you open our eyes to new ways of thinking. To realize what we read in the prophet Isaiah, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. But by your grace, may that change. May we come to see who you are. And in seeing who you are, come to see why you do things the way you do. And yet at the end of the day, the reality is we may not know in this lifetime why you have allowed certain things to happen. We can only know that you have a purpose. There is wisdom and justice and power behind all that you do. We're grateful that you brought us safely through another week. Now we begin a new week, having met together to worship you. We pray for Jacob, possible he'd be released from the hospital. For Lonnie, she gets the results of the bone scan and meets with Dr. Brown. For Tom, as he continues to heal. For each one of us, as we walk through this world in the midst of a plague, may we have a sense of your presence. The God who made Behemoth and made Leviathan. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.